Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, Well, let me add a good morning to you as well. My name is uh, Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, if you want to turn your Bible to Isaiah 52 and 3, that's where we'll be this morning. But let me pray for us uh, before we jump in. Father, may you give us clarity about what those words mean. Not just the truth of them, but what it means for us right now, this moment. The life we're, we're walking through, living through, what... What does the actions of these servant have to do with us? Show us, I pray, in, in Jesus' name, amen. Napoleon Bonaparte famously said, Death is nothing, but to, li- to live defeated and inglorious is to die daily. It's the exact kind of thing you'd expect someone to say who has an epic movie about them currently in theaters. We find this kind of person interesting. We want to learn more about them. We want to watch a movie about their lives. That Napoleon's life, it was about power and conquest. And we remember him for it. He was celebrated for it. That when Napoleon returned to Paris from exile... He arrived knowing the French government had ordered his execution on the spot. But instead, he walked proudly through the streets of Paris, saying out loud, Is there anyone here who would kill me? And the soldiers dropped their muskets to the ground and cheered him. What bravado. That's impressive, right? Well, if that's how we treat and view someone with human power and human cunning... What might we expect if someone with the power of God showed up among us? What power might he display? What victims might he claim? That we're in week three of our Advent series where we meditate on God's arrival among us. The incarnation, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. And this morning we're going to meditate not on his beginning... But his end, what happened to him? And it is confusing, shocking even. He had none of the bravado, the conquest, the power of a Napoleon. Jesus, God incarnate, the God-man, lived and died in the words of Napoleon, defeated and inglorious. Why? Why did the Son of God die defeated and inglorious? Well, that's the question behind the text that Becca and Taylor read for us, Isaiah 52 and 53. And the text begins where we would expect it to begin in a story about the coming of of God's arrival, the servant's arrival. Verse 13 of chapter 52, Behold my servants. Now that that might not sound like much, but for several chapters before this, Isaiah has been talking about a servant. And this servant has been a figure of power. Two examples. 
Isaiah 42, verse 1, I will put, this is the Lord speaking, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, how much power do you need to bring justice to the nations? Just park us in this moment in which we live. How much power would you need to bring justice to the Ukrainians whose lands were invaded by Russia? How much power would you need to bring justice to Israel who was invaded by Hamas? Isaiah also says about this servant, Isaiah 49, 7, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down. Napoleon would stand up to this servant to honor him because he would be such a figure of justice and power and might. So that, that's who this servant is and has been for many chapters. And that's what we should be thinking in verse 13 of chapter 52 when the Lord speaks to Isaiah, Behold my servant. And then it, it gets better from there. Verse 13, My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Now this language is only found in Isaiah 6, these two words together. Lifted up and highly exalted. You go all the way back to Isaiah 6.1 and we find the Lord, uh, Isaiah sees the Lord and what does he see? I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. Power and majesty. The servant is high and exalted, just like God in Isaiah 6. So the text begins where we might expect it to begin, with power and might and exaltation. But from this point forward, it makes no sense and becomes extremely confusing, even shocking. Because what we read of the servant through the rest of the passage is his utter humiliation. Verse 14, many were appalled at him. Verse 14, his appearance was disfigured. He didn't even look like a human. Verse 2, chapter 53, he grew up like a tender shoot. This isn't a a strong, sturdy tree. This is a, a root you could easily pluck out of the ground if you wanted. He's weak. Verse 2, he had nothing attractive to him, no beauty or majesty. Verse 3, people despised him and rejected him. Verse 3, he was so appalling, people had to turn their faces away from him. Verse 3, he's so contemptible that everyone held him in low esteem. They saw him and found him to be a joke. So what in the world is going on here? <laughs> From behold my servant high and exalted to he's disfigured, he's appalling. I can, we can't even look at him. What is Why does Jesus die defeated and inglorious? And maybe you're sitting there wondering, Tim, this is Christmas. We're supposed to be talking about baby Jesus. Can we talk about baby Jesus? Because we love babies and babies are awesome. I have a nephew, Luke, who'll turn one in January, and everything he does is cute. He sneezes and gets snot all over his face, and it's the most precious thing you could witness. <laughs> if I sneezed into my beard right now, most of you would leave the room disgusted. 
<laughs> I won't. I'll try. I'm actually nervous I was going to do it when <laughs> I put that in there. No sneeze at, at this point is felt by me. But So how do we get from baby Jesus to this? I mean, th- this is why in Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby expressed his preference to play, pray to baby Jesus, eight pounds, six ounce with his baby Jesus powers. We love baby Jesus. So how do we get from baby Jesus to this? Well, the, te- the text tells us. The servant died because human beings held him in contempt. And why did we hold him in contempt? Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one people hide their faces from, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So God arrives among human beings and we do not welcome him the way Napoleon was welcomed when he returned from exile. And Napoleon shouted out, hey, kill me if you, if you dare, and Paris cheered him on. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was a clear act of claiming to, to be a king. It was every bit what Napoleon did when he arrived back in Paris. Because do you know who else in the Old Testament rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that donkey, he's saying, I'm your king. And the response was to hold him in contempt and to put him through an inglorious and defeated death. But that raises the question, well, why did we hold him in contempt? What did human beings find so appalling about Jesus? Well, again, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. So he he was a man of suffering, Which raises the question, well, what's he suffering from? What are the sources of his sorrows? And here's where it gets really interesting. Because verse 4 tells us, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Why is he so appalling? What's the source of his disfigurement? Why is he suffering? Why is he a man of sorrows? Because he's taken our sorrows and our suffering. And as we read on the text, we we find everything happening to this servant is happening to him because of us. Verse 5, he's pierced for our transgressions. Verse 5, he's crushed for our iniquities. Verse 5, he's punished so that we could have peace. Verse 5, he's wounded so that we might have healing. Because, verse 6, we're all like sheep. Turned our own way so the Lord put, his, put our iniquity onto him. And you understand what this text is saying? The human beings look at this servant and find him appalling, Disgusting, disfigured, contemptible, defeated, inglorious. That's what people see when they look at the servants. But we aren't seeing him when we see all of those things. We're looking in the mirror. The servant Jesus is taking the human condition upon himself and we are appalled at what we're looking at. 
We see him disfigured and appalling, but what we are looking at is ourselves. That This is a mirror to our human condition. When we see his disfigurement, his brokenness, his appallingness, we are looking at ourselves. And this brings us into territory that many in our culture find very contemptible about Christianity, which is the doctrine of sin. And I understand a lot of our culture struggle on the doctrine of of sin. One, one reason being, a lot of people who believe about sin or talk about sin seem to believe sin is primarily a doctrine that's about other people. And so if you believe in sin, that's more about the other people that you see in the world and not about yourself. And those people are the least fun people to be around. We might be around them at Christmas or they might be around us. And I understand if you struggle with the doctrine of sin, if you think that, that in communicating the doctrine of sin, I'm just saying, well, that's about you, but not about me. Or another reason why people struggle with the doctrine of sin is that it, it feels really shaming. I mean, this text is essentially saying that when Jesus takes on the human condition, it's appalling. It's disfiguring. It's not beautiful. And that is what the doctrine of sin is saying, that human beings are disfigured. We've lost the beauty. We're every bit as as appalling as there is goodness in us. And that sounds really harsh. And so our culture's response to sin has become uh, to stuff it away, to reject it, to refuse to look at it, and to, to say to ourselves, just love yourself. Don't let anyone tell you Anything about you is wrong. Love and accept yourself unconditionally. There's just, there's a few problems with that line of thinking. The, the, the primary one is I don't believe it works. Now I have, I have no doubt all of us have shows that we watch or music that we listen to that we would be very hesitant to acknowledge publicly. Our guilty pleasures. Well, I'm going to have the courage to name mine. I love shows about cults. Not the Indianapolis Colts. Although I do love them and enjoyed the game last night. I love shows about C-U-L-T-S's. As in weird religious movements. If there's a cult documentary out there, I've probably seen it. And my latest guilty pleasure was the documentary Love Has Won. It's about Amy Carlson or Mother God, as she was referred to by her followers. And throughout the documentary, you hear her saying, love yourself, affirm yourself. Uh, That's also mixed in with some communication with aliens, but I'm not going to go down that territory this morning. Um, But her, her, her message was very similar to our culture message. Just love yourself, accept yourself. But at the end of her life, as she was dying, because of her alcoholism and extensive drug use, Uh, She texted her family, her mom and her kids, whom she had abandoned years before, hoping they would come to see her, comfort her in her death. And she even began to say to her followers, what if I made all this up and it's all a lie? And I would say that a cult leader has this type of moment of clarity My belief is we all have these moments. Moments where we know our human condition, who we are, 
is disfigured. Appalling, even. At some point, we know we can't shut that out any longer. The best way I've heard this described is uh, with a Christian author named Francis Bufford, who has a book called Unapologetic. This is the best chapter on sin I've ever, I've ever read. It's a little intense, so I, I don't necessarily recommend it, but his depiction of sin, I think, is, is profound. And here's what he writes. It's, a, it's extended, uh, an extended quote, so come with me. Listen, listen as best you can. He says, Our appointment with reality often comes one of the classic moments of adult failure. When a marriage ends, when a career stalls or crumbles, when a relationship fades away with a child only seen on Saturdays, when the supposedly recreational drug habit turns out to be exercising veto powers over every other hope and dream. It need not be dramatic, though. It can equally well just be the drifting into one into place of one more pleasant, indistinguishable little atom of wasted time. One more morning like all the others, which quietly discloses you to yourself. You're lying in the bath and you notice that you're 39, you don't have children, and, all the ways, and, and that the way you're living bears scarcely any resemblance to what you think you've always wanted. Yet you got here by choice, by a long series of choices for things which at any one moment temporarily outbid the things you say you wanted most. And as the water cools and the light of Saturday morning and summer ripples heartlessly on the bathroom ceiling, you glimpse an unflattering vision of yourself as a being whose wants make no sense, don't harmonize, whose desires deep down are disconcordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the very same time. You're equipped, you realize, for farce or even tragedy more than you are for happy endings. And sin dawns on you. You have indeed messed things up. Of course you have. You're human. And that's where we live. That's our normal experience. Our normal experience is to fail and to hurt the people around us. Our normal experience is to do the things we promised ourselves we would never do. And so there it is. I, I just called us all appalling and disfigured. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but I believe uh, what's going on in Isaiah 52 and 53 has the power to, to change you and set you free far more than just looking in the mirror and saying, I love myself and I'm worthy of love. And imagine instead of trying to convince yourself that you're lovable, that you're better than your critics suggest, that despite your flaws and failures, that you are worthy of love. Imagine instead of you having to convince yourself that's true, that you are lovely, that you are beautiful. Instead, imagine someone else tells you that. But they tell you that knowing all the things you have done that you wish you could forget. That person knows them all, all the disfigured parts of you, all the regrets, but he still believes that you are lovely and beautiful and he can make you glorious even. And so he wants to take those things from you onto himself and then give you what is his, his glory and his beauty and his majesty. So why does Jesus die defeated and inglorious? Well, he has taken our inglorious condition that we might share his glory. 
And when you find yourself coming to that reality of how sin has disfigured you, how you are broken, don't go down the path of looking inside yourself for the resources to keep loving yourself in spite of what you know is wrong about you. That's fragile. We'll never get you far. Instead, hear the servants inviting you outside of you, saying to you, you are lovely, you are beautiful. Because that's what, that's what Jesus is doing in this passage, taking what shames us so that we can have his peace, taking what has wounded us so that we can experience his healing. Jesus knows everything you have ever done and wants to take it from you so that you can know healing, peace, and salvation. And what a resource that is to go to in moments where you know your own brokenness and shame, where you don't look in the mirror at yourself, but you look to Christ who willingly bore wounds and punishment because he is that committed to bring you peace and healing. That we could sing with that forever the words of John Newton. My grace would soon exhausted be, but his is boundless as the sea. Then let me boast with holy Paul that I am nothing. Christ is all. My grace for myself runs out. But if, if Isaiah 52 and 53 is true, his grace for me doesn't because he's taken the things from me onto himself. He took my iniquity. He took the punishment that was due me. That means when I go to pray to him, I don't have to convince him to love me. He knows it all and he's taken it from me. So I go fully accepted and in the assurance of his glory over my life rather than me trying to convince him that I'm worthy of his love. Why does Jesus die in glorious and defeated? To take our disfigurement. And make us glorious again. So that's one answer uh, to our question to the text. But there's another that gets right at the heart of the Advent season. Uh, this season, Christmas season, is, is, it's about God with us. God's arrival among us. Jesus our Emmanuel. And, and the assumption of Christmas is that's good news. And it is, kind of. But it is also bad news. Our, uh, our house where we live is, is one that has, has an open balcony to our upstairs that overlooks our living room. And so that means we can hear everything going on with our kids upstairs with precision. So that means if our kids are fighting one another upstairs, we can hear all of it. And sometimes the arguments die down into peace. Sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, and I have to ascend the stairs... To put an end to the chaos, when I climb to the top of the stairs as the authority figure of the house, when I ascend the stairs, justice is coming. <laughs> Judgments will be pronounced. And can we expect any different when God arrives among us? Justice and judgment to be pronounced. For a long time, the church's sermon text the Sunday before Christmas Eve was on hell and judgment. Because they believed the arrival of God was not just good news. It was also bad news. Because this world needs judgment. God is coming into a world where the human condition has disfigured this place, has taken its beauty, has led to war and injustice, violence and racism, all of it. And God has a, has a response to all the disfigurement. God's advent means judgment. But what's interesting is in God's first arrival among us in the life of Jesus, there was judgment. 
God did pronounce judgment on this world in the, the advent of Jesus. And who got the judgment? Not us. The Son. The servants. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Christmas is about substitution. The why does Jesus die defeated and glorious? Well, because the judgment that was ours became his. And again, this is something people struggle with. Why, why does Jesus have to die? Why can't God just forgive sins? Why does the judgment of God have to fall on anyone? And there are so many ways the Bible answers that question, but I, I just want to note um, two things briefly this morning about why God can't just forgive sins and why a substitutionary death is required for us to know the love of God. The first is there is no love without substitution. You cannot love another person without suffering for them. For a while in my 20s, I had a pretty deep friendship with someone who was, um, was alcoholic, was uh, immature for his age, easily bailed on commitments. He's really hard to love. And as I was trying to be his, his friend, uh, I read Tim Keller's Reason for God and, and read this line from Keller that really shaped the way I think about relationships. Keller writes, all life-changing love toward people with serious needs is a substitutional sacrifice. If you become personally involved with them in some way, their weaknesses flow towards you as your strengths flow towards them. There is no way to love people without suffering for them, without their wounds flowing to you, without their brokenness impacting you. And so if that's true of, of me and another person and of my brokenness flowing to other people, then what would it look like for God to enter the human condition and deal with me? What would it look like for God to enter into a human condition of wars and violence? All the family fights and squabbles that break our family tables apart, all the gossip and slander we do to one another, all the addictions and lies and manipulations we try to get away with. What would it look like for Jesus to love disfigured humanity? See, no one can just forgive. <laughs> All love is substitutionary sacrifice. And Isaiah 52 and 53 shows us. Jesus is entering into to our condition to love us. And it's pain and suffering and death. And that would be bad news if that's all, all it was. But the second reason the substitutionary death of Jesus is so important is the servant Jesus willingly takes this fate. I mean, listen to how he's described in verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and the sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He does not protest his own faith. Fate. He's not yelling out, this isn't fair, I didn't want this to happen. He's not, look at all, you're the evil ones. What are you doing? To, he doesn't do any of that. He goes silent. He accepts his faith. This is the way theologian John Oswald describes this passage. Unlike other sufferers in the Old Testament, the majority of whom let it be known in no uncertain terms that they did not deserve what was happening to them, even when they did deserve it, this person submits without a demur. And the readers led to ask why. 
And can it be that the servant does not see himself as a helpless victim of circumstances beyond his control, but is participating voluntarily in something that he understands to be part of the larger purposes of God? Or as Jesus says in John's gospel, I lay my life down and no one takes it from me. He willingly goes to this substitutionary death on our behalf. He was no helpless victim, which means he wanted to enter into your disfigurement. He wanted to enter into your condition of sin. He wanted to die for you. That he does not look at us in our disfigurement, our sin, our brokenness, and turn away from us as we turned away from him when we put him on a cross, but to turn towards us and to love us and to die for us. Do you know how loved you are by God? I don't care what the experience of this world has been to you, how men have treated you, what your experience with your parents was like, how many times other people have turned away from you or abandoned you because of your brokenness. Jesus did not do that to you. He did the opposite. He turned towards you in the midst of your disfigurement and sin. In our worst, in your worst, he willingly turned toward you in love. He took that condition upon himself. He took the judgment that was yours, mine, and he made it his. And that means to be a Christian, to be in Christ, you know the, the forgiveness and love of God because Jesus died willingly in your place. And so when you go to pray next, if you have that feeling like, surely he doesn't want to hear from me, it's the same stuff again and again. I'm not who he should be. I'm not good enough to hear him. First of all, he already knows all that. None of that's a surprise, and yet go back to this passage. He took it from you. It's his. Let him own it, and you go to him, forgiven, shame-free, in newness of life. Why did the Son of God die defeated and inglorious? To take your judgment from you. If you're in Christ, there's no judgment left for you. None. If you're not yet in Christ, then flee to him, and there's no judgment left for you. One last place to go. Verse 12, God appears to speak over the servant after he dies. He's dead, but then we read this, therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, for he bore the sins of many and made transgression for the transgressors. So he dies, but now he's with the great. It's okay, maybe he's buried among the great. But then we read, he will divide the spoils with the strong. Now this is confusing because how does someone who died, defeated and inglorious, have the victorious spoils of war? You get spoils when you win a battle, not when you die. And yet, how can this be true? Why does Jesus die defeated and inglorious? Well, to share his victory over death with us. How can the servant die and have bounty to share his spoil? Because the end of his story is not his defeat and inglorious death, but his victory over death and his glorious reign now at the right hand of the Father. Which means it's not just that Jesus can forgive you for your human condition. It's not just that he knows what's wrong with you. He also has the power to change your condition, to make what is dead in you alive, to bring beauty where there is shame, to bring life where there is death. So what's dead in you right now? As you move into this Christmas season, what is dead in you? Is your hope for the year to come? Well, Jesus has victory over death to share with you. Is there an addiction that's weighing you down now? 
Well, Jesus has victory over death to share with you. Are you discouraged or in despair? Well, Jesus has victory over death to share with you. Is there something in your past you think you will never be free from? Well, Jesus has victory over death to share with you. Is there shame that has stayed with you for years? Jesus has victory over death to share with you. Apparently, Phil needs to be here because no one else is hearing me right now. Jesus has victory to share with you. And some of us, we need to start praising God because we're already living in that victory now. We've seen it and experienced it. The job you got to pay your bills, that's the victory of Christ shared with you. The addiction that you have broken free of, that is the victory of Christ shared with you. The family you get to drive home with today, that's the victory of Christ shared with you. The forgiveness you get to taste from God in a few minutes when we eat it and drink it at the table. That is the victory of Christ shared with you. As Christians, our identity is no longer in our disfigurement, our appalling nature, because he's taken that from us. That's not ours. But we get to share his victory over death. And he has spoils to share with us. Merry Christmas. Let us pray. Uh, Father, we're not, we're not, we now need to sing those truths over us. We all know, that, we want to know that they're true. That our, our brokenness has been replaced by your victory. That our, our judgment has been taken from you. That what is broken in us can be made whole by you. We, we name those as true, but um, we need help believing them. So we now sing them. Spirit, lead us as we sing. Give us hope. Fill what is dead in us with life. Take us to the servant. And may we sing with um, John Newton. (laughs) For my grace would soon run out, but yours is boundless as the sea. May we swim in the boundless sea of your grace now. I pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.